Thank you, Ben. Children, you may be dismissed for Children's Church. I do have one little addendum to the Higgins testimony. Uh, They both have been baptized by immersion. So uh, in case you might have been wondering that, uh, there's no need to wonder. They both have followed the Lord in the waters of baptism um, and are happy to have done that many years ago. So as I said, we are kind of doing something a little bit different this morning as far as an Easter service is concerned. Um, We are going to open our Bibles to the book of Philippians, okay? The book of Philippians. And as you are turning there, I want you to be mindful of the fact that as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, we are celebrating the fact that the tomb is empty. Uh, There was a body in that tomb, and that body belonged to our Savior, Jesus Christ. They took him down off the cross after he was dead. There was no doubt that Jesus was dead. Um, the Roman soldier had come uh, to, check his bo- to check him to make sure he was dead, and as was the custom, uh, he was going to break the legs of Jesus, um, but then he realized there was no need to break the leg. You see, when somebody was crucified, um, the last thing that they did was they, they kind of, with every bit of strength left in their body on the little, uh, the little perch that was there for their feet, they kind of just pushed themselves up so they could gain just a little bit more breath into their lungs because the crucifixion was a horrible, horrible death. Uh, It was a painful death. It was a slow death. Um, And normally people would hang on and hang on and hang on. Uh, And so they would come by with with an apparatus and they would break the individual's legs so they couldn't push themselves up to continue breathing. However, Jesus uttered something while he was on the cross. He said, it is finished. And he, as he predicted, as he said before, he gave up his spirit. He voluntarily ceased to live. He stopped breathing. He, as the old King James says, he gave up the ghost. Okay? Jesus died. And the Old Testament was also clear in that not a bone of the Savior would be broken. So it couldn't happen that the Roman soldiers would break his legs because that would not be in fulfillment of prophecy. Um, But they plunged that spear into his side, and when they took the spear out of his side, blood, what little bit of blood was left in his body came out, and then the water came out, indicating that there was no life blood flowing through his veins any longer. He was indeed dead. No question about it. He was dead. Joseph of Arimathea came and asked if he could take the body down off the cross, and and he did, and he placed the body of Jesus, our Savior, in the tomb. And then they rolled rolled a stone in front of the tomb. It was a massive stone. It was intended that nobody would ever remove that stone from the grave, and that that would be proof positive that Jesus was not who he said he was because he remains in a tomb to this day. However, God had other plans, and God raised his body from the dead. Stone was still in front of the tomb when Jesus was gone from the tomb. He didn't need the stone to be rolled away to to get out of the tomb. 
when Mary and Mary and the other ladies were on their way to the tomb, they had this conversation. What are we going to do? How are we going to roll that massive stone away from the door of the tomb? Because they wanted to get in and prepare his body for what they thought would be a long-term burial. You see, everybody had missed the fact that Jesus said, in three days, I will rise again. Well, as they approach the tomb, they see the stone is already rolled away. And, and so they, they, they go in, and, and as they go in, they see this angel standing there or sitting there, depending on the account you read. And, and the angel says to the ladies, well, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. Remember what he said to you? He is risen. My friends, that's what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. And as we think about the fact that Jesus is not in a tomb, he is alive, we want to focus this morning on resurrection power. Okay, what is the power of the resurrection? It's Easter Sunday morning, and as we gather to celebrate the most important day on the Christian calendar, I want us to think about what Easter is really all, what, it, what it's really all about. So I'm going to start with you this morning. I want you to tell me what you believe Easter is all about. Why is this day so important? Go ahead, shout it out. Make it nice and loud so everybody can hear. Truth. About the truth. Hope. Hope. Everlasting life. Everlasting life. Forgiveness, adoption, somebody saying faith, you got to say it louder, man. Faith, okay, you even stood up to say it, good job. What else? Prophecy fulfilled. Anything else? Easter, what is it all about? Love, God demonstrated his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and then rose again for us. Power. Power. Victory. Fellowship, victory. Art. Was it one more? No more pain. All right. Those are some pretty good reasons that talk about the magnificence of Easter. Easter Sunday. What a great day to be a child of God. We've already spent time this morning together celebrating the fact that the tomb that Jesus was buried in on Friday was empty on Sunday. We're, excuse me, going to continue thinking about those things this morning. There's a track company called Bible Truth Publishers, and they have a track that looks like this. The front of it says, The Empty Tomb. And it goes on to talk about um, a conversation between a Christian and a Muslim. And the inside front cover of the track says, In one of the villages in northern India, a Christian preacher was speaking in the market. There, there's a naturally a good deal of discussion after such meetings, for India is a land of culture. A Muslim came up and said, You must admit that we Muslims, Muslims have one thing on you Christians that you do not have. We at least can take our people to Medina where they can see the tomb of Muhammad. But when you Christians go to Jerusalem, you have no coffin. You have no empty tomb. You have, you have an empty tomb. To this the preacher replied, Praise God, you are right. 
That's the difference between our faith and yours. Your leader is in his, in his grave. But Jesus, whose kingdom is to include all nations and all kindreds and all tribes, is not in any grave. The difference is Muhammad is dead and in a grave. Still there. They see him every day. They can't deny that he's dead and in the grave. They see him every time they go there. But every time a person goes to the tomb in Jerusalem, what do they find? An empty tomb. What more can we say than the fact is we have an empty tomb? The truth is indeed in the power of our Christian faith, the fact that the grave is empty and Jesus is no longer there. The, the, the fact of the empty tomb is what separates Christianity from any other religion ever developed by Satan to confuse mankind. And make no mistake about it, I'm going to be very bold this morning and tell you that any religion that tries to make a way to heaven other than Jesus Christ on the cross, in the tomb, emptied the tomb, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, is a tool of Satan. It is a religious mockery of who our one God is. God says there is one way, and that only way, that only way is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This morning we're going to look at a passage of scripture that might not be considered an Easter text, but it definitely speaks to the power of the resurrection. Would you open your Bibles and, and, uh, to Philippians chapter 3 this morning? Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read together verses 8 through 11. So would you stand? It's on the screen. So read from the screen with me. Philippians chapter 3 verses 8 through 11. Our focus will be on verses 10 and 11. But we want to set the context just a little bit so we are aware of what's going on. Read with me if you will. Philippians 3, 8 through 10. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And then verse 11 says, If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You notice what Paul is doing there in verses 8 and 9. He's telling you about his righteousness and how unworthy that makes him to be a follower of Christ. And then he reminds us about the resurrection of Christ that makes it possible for anyone to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's ask God to bless our time together this morning in his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a wonderful day it has already been. We've celebrated the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, we've heard the testimony of individuals desiring to be obedient to you and become members of a local body of believers. And, and that's right here at Calvary Baptist Church. We're thankful for the testimony of the Higgins for faithful lives lived of pointing others to you and encouraging others to become followers of Jesus. And we've sung songs of praise and worship that reminded us that the tomb is indeed empty. Jesus is alive. 
He rose from the dead. He's seated now at the right hand. And the next thing that he will do is come back to take us home to be with you for all of eternity. Oh, what a day that will be. And Father, as we open the passages of Scripture this morning, uh, starting here in Philippians chapter 3, may you encourage us to be uh, followers of Christ, knowing and understanding what the power of the resurrection means to each one of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Bless our time in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So before we jump into this text, focusing in on verse 10, let me tell you the story of how the Philippian church got started. We find it recorded for us over in Acts chapter 16. Uh, So Paul is writing to these individuals who were part of the church when he started it, as recorded in in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. It started it with a riverside prayer meeting where a lady named Lydia and her family trusted the Lord as their Savior. Her life was so changed, her world was so rocked, that she invited this stranger, Paul, and his team to come to her house and to stay with them. As they continued ministering in the city, they encountered a demon-possessed girl who was frustrating everything that Paul and his team did to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or at least she was trying to frustrate the work of the gospel. Every time Paul would present the gospel, this, uh, this demon girl would cry out and, and make a mockery of what they were doing. This demon-possessed girl was a, uh, a slave girl of men in the city, and they used this, this little girl to tell the fortunes of, uh, of others and to make money from the people of Philippi. Very deceptive. It was a, maybe it was the first scam ever recorded, but that's exactly what it was. It was a scam. There was no truth to it, and Satan was using it to hinder the spread of the gospel in Philippi. Paul finally loses his patience with this tool of Satan and he turned to her and noticed that he spoke directly to the demon and not to the girl. He didn't rebuke the girl, but he looked at the girl and he rebuked the demon and he says, come out from from out of her. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of this girl. And you know what? The demon had no choice because Paul used that name. The name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, come out. And the demon obeyed and left her that same hour. This slave girl's owners then were very, very unpleased with what Paul and his team had done. And so they came and they gathered Paul and his team up and they brought him before the leaders of the city. And they falsely accused them. They, they called them, and it was no different than it is today, made point of the fact that they were Jewish people. These Jewish people have come and they've disrupted our town. They're, they're preaching these things. They're talking about this man, Jesus. And, and they're causing disruption in the town. We need to deal with these people because they're not good for our town. And so the magistrates commanded that they be beaten. And they did a thorough job of beating Paul and Silas. And then they commanded that Paul and Silas be thrown into the jail and and kept as securely as possible. So when they threw them in the jail, they didn't throw them in in the outer part of the jail where they might be easy to get in and out or influence other people. They threw them in the deepest, darkest part of the jail, into the dungeon, if you will. And not only did they throw them into the dungeon, but they locked their hands and their feet into into chains and into stocks. And there was no way that Paul and Silas were getting out of that prison. 
Bible goes on to tell us in Acts chapter 16 that Paul and Silas... Now, what, let me ask you this. What might you be doing had that happened to you? Crying. Crying, complaining. This isn't fair. Why is this happening to us? God, what are you doing? How come you're not... How come we're stuck in here? We don't deserve to be in here. But you know what they were doing? And I don't know how Paul and Silas sounded when they sang, but they were singing praises to God. They were testifying about the goodness of God. They weren't complaining. They were simply praising God. They were having their own little prayer meeting and praise session there in the dungeon. And they were doing it loud enough so the other prisoners could hear. And they were beginning to see that God was doing a work in the hearts of these other prisoners. And all of a sudden, at midnight... An earthquake strikes, and the walls of the prison begin to shake, and the doors begin to shake, and you know what happened? The stocks and the bonds, they fell off of Paul and Silas, and the prison doors opened, and they were free to go. Now, this Philippian jailer who had been charged with keeping them locked up tight and secure in the prison had looked around and realized that all of the prison doors were open, knowing that if he didn't take his own life, the Roman authorities would take his life as soon as they found out about it. So he was about to fall on his own sword. When Paul hollers out, he says, hey, don't do yourself any harm. We're all still here. What? You're still here? Why are you still here? And he runs back with a torch and he looks at Paul and Silas and he says, you guys are different. You guys are strange. You're weird. What is, made, what is it that makes you so different? What must I do to become like you? And Paul says, you must be saved. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you must allow him to do a work in your heart that only he can do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. The rest of the events of Acts chapter 16 are the beginning of the church of Philippi. Let me tell you something. Resurrection power was on display in Acts chapter 16 when the Philippian church was started. They knew that God made a difference. Resurrection power. It's just as powerful, it's just as amazing today as it was then. And as we now jump to Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul says this, that I may know him, and the him there is Jesus Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. They were all ears. They wanted to hear about this resurrection power of which Paul spoke. Paul was convinced of the power of the resurrection. I like some things that John Piper says when he points out the power of the resurrection. He says four times in the book of Acts, Paul puts in one sentence why he endured persecution again and again and again in his ministry. He says, first of all, before the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 23, verse 6, he said, it is with respect to this hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Why was, Peter, why was Paul standing on trial for his life? Because he preached the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In Acts chapter 4, verse 21, before Felix in Caesarea, 
Paul said, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead, namely Jesus, that, I'm on, that I am on trial before you on this day. And then again, before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he said, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why do you think that that's not possible? Why do you think that that's strange? God does indeed raise the dead. He raised, raised Jesus from the dead. Why would you think he can't raise others? And then before the Jews in Rome, he said, it is because of the hope of Israel. Now, can I tell you what the hope of Israel is? It's the Messiah. It's the one that they crucified on a cross and placed in a tomb and that God raised from the dead, proving beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. He is the Son of God. He's the long-awaited one. He's the anointed one. He is the one who was promised to come to deliver the people of Israel from their oppression. The resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of all Christians at his coming was the sustaining power of Paul's song in suffering and his love for this jailer who was about to take his life. Wow. Now that jailer, huh, it's kind of strange. We might have been wishing bad on that jailer had we been there in that prison cell. I mean, after all, he's the one who threw Paul in the dungeon, locked him up to the, to the wall so he couldn't go anywhere. There are two things that we see in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that result from resurrection power. First of all, we see uh, that the power of the resurrection allowed Jesus to suffer and to die in our place. And Paul here in Philippians 3 suggests that we need to conform to that same mindset. The fellowship of the sufferings being conformed to his death. You see, resurrection power allows us to suffer with Jesus. Second, it provides that, the hope that we are also going to be resurrected from the dead. In verse 11, he says that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's talk a little bit, first of all, about this suffering with Jesus. Anybody here really want to suffer? Do you like suffering? No, you don't want to suffer. It's against our human nature. It's against our desire. None of us really want to suffer. Okay, it's not normal. But there are times when we should suffer and we need to suffer. Just what is this resurrection power that Paul is talking about? Today we celebrate the event of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's a historical event. Those who try to deny that it happened come up short when measuring with history. Because even history records the empty tomb. But when Paul talks about the resurrection here, he's not simply talking about that event that happened three days after the crucifixion of Jesus. Instead, he's talking about the ongoing power that he and other believers have because Jesus rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, having completed his work that the Father gave him to do. That's the power of the resurrection. It's an ongoing power. Yes, it raised Jesus from the dead. It provided us with the empty tomb. But that wasn't it. It's ongoing. The power of the resurrection sustains us in life and in service for Jesus Christ. This suffering that we're talking about. Let me first of all point out that this suffering is not the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross to atone for our sins. Why not? 
Because Paul knew that nothing he could do in the flesh could equal or add to the atoning work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. That is a work that is only able to be done by the Son of God and it was done once for all. We can't suffer for our own salvation. There's nothing that we can do to, a, to gain salvation or to add to our salvation. The Bible Knowledge Commentary makes this comment. It says, these sufferings were not Christ's substitutionary sufferings on the cross. Paul knew that those could not be shared. We cannot share in the sufferings of Christ on the cross. But we can share in the sufferings of serving the one true God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus had a certain mindset that allowed him to suffer, even to suffer to the point of death. We've made reference to this many times. Paul talks about the mindset over in chapter 2 when he writes, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, the mindset that Paul is talking about here is the same mindset that was revealed in Christ over in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You know those verses as well. We talk about them often. But here's the key. In verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Here it is. Are you listening? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you catch the key in there? The key was that it says, who for the joy that was set before him. The mindset of Jesus was one of joy. Now, I don't know that we can quite understand that. Where was the joy in the false accusations against Jesus in his trials? Where was the joy in the betrayal by Judas with a kiss? Where was the joy in the beatings at the hands of the Roman soldiers? Or the joy in the carrying of the cross up to the hill of Golgotha? Or in the pounding of the nails into the hands and into the feet of our Savior? Where is the joy in that? Can I be honest with you? There was no physical joy in any of that. But the joy was in knowing what those things were going to accomplish. The joy was in knowing that as he hung there on the cross, he took the sins of mankind upon himself, on his own body. That's why Jesus was incarnate. That's why Jesus took on flesh. That's why he was a babe born in a manger, so that he would have a body that would be able to hang on a cross and carry the sins of the world in his body. God made a body for him for that very reason, to carry the sins of mankind. There was no joy in the physical pain at which Christ endured. But he was looking beyond the cross, even beyond the resurrection. He was looking into eternity where he would welcome you and I into his presence, where he would claim before his father, I've paid for their sins. They have been made right with you through my shed blood on the cross of Calvary. They can stand before you 
as individuals who are part of our family because of the work that I accomplished on the cross of Calvary. Therein is the joy that he knew what he would accomplish, that you and I will be, brought, be able to be brought into a right relationship with God the Father through his Son. The joy was in that he satisfied the just demands of his Father and purchased our redemption. I think we would all agree that none of us and no one else in all of history suffered the way Jesus did for the cause of righteousness. And Paul says, I want to enter into the sufferings of Christ. I want to be part of the sufferings of Jesus. I want to suffer to some degree the way Jesus suffered. His mindset was that he knew no matter what, his Father's will would be done. No matter what he had to suffer, no matter what he endured, at the right time, he would be brought back to his Father's right hand and he would sit down in his rightful place at the throne of God. And then he would return to earth at the appointed time to receive his bride to himself. Remember this. This helps us have the right mindset. God the Father is always in control. And when we trust the Father's plan, we can have joy no matter what we're going through. Part of the mindset that Paul had and the author of Hebrews had and that we can also have is to always be mindful of the fact that the Lord is in control and His will will always be done. There's another truth that accompanies resurrection power, and that truth is knowing that the living Christ who has endured the very same things that we will endure in our walk with him is always with us, no matter what we are facing. The companionship, the camaraderie promised to us by Jesus in Matthew 28 will always be true, it will always be there, all the time, every time. MacArthur makes this comment. He says, The deepest moments of spiritual fellowship with the living Christ are at times of intense suffering. Suffering drives believers to Jesus. They find in him a merciful high priest, a faithful friend who feels our pain, and a sympathetic companion who, when faced with all the trials and temptations that they face, he's there for us. He's been through it all. He is thus uniquely qualified to help them in their weakness and in their infirmities. You see, my friends, resurrection power allows us to suffer with Jesus and to suffer in a way that will bring honor and glory to him and to his Father. The second thing that we see is that resurrection power secures hope. Resurrection power secures hope. You see, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul spends a great deal of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 telling us how pitiful, how hopeless we would be if Christ did not rise from the dead. You know what he says there? He says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We can believe all we want but it wouldn't accomplish anything. He also said that our preaching 
would be in vain. In other words, every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, year after year, decade after decade, every preacher who preaches up, stands up and preaches from the Word of God, their preaching would be in vain if it weren't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Praise God that the preaching is not in vain. We would be pitiful people aside from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me remind you here, when I say that resurrection power secures hope, what is this hope? Well, let me tell you what it's not. This hope is not a wish. It's not a, well, maybe if we try hard enough, it might happen. No, that's not what this hope is, my friends. This hope is a certainty. It's an absolute. You see, Paul says that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. As we read this phrase, it looks like Paul is not sure that he will know the resurrection or experience the resurrection from a personal point of view. But I want to tell you something. Paul knew, Paul was absolutely convinced that he would understand and experience a physical resurrection from the dead should his body fail to live out till Jesus comes again. He was convinced of that. But I want you to see something in this text. It gets a bit technical here, so I I need you to follow me as we work through this. As we read the text this morning, we read in verse 10, and it says there, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The Greek word there in verse 10 for resurrection is anastasio. Okay, it's that, it's that word that means um, uh, the resurrection of the body from death or a return to life. That's what that word means, Anastasio means somebody was dead, but now they are alive. Resurrection, we all understand that, right? It's a common understanding, it's a common definition. You can look it up in Webster's, you can look it up in Oxford, whatever dictionary you want to choose, you can even go to the online dictionary. It would tell you that resurrection means to be brought back to life, to breathe life into something that was dead. Now, when we get to verse 11, Paul says this, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You say, yeah, pastor, that sounds like the same word to me. Well, the problem is we're reading it in English. And English leaves something to be um, desired here in this case. This word in verse 11 is a different Greek word. Only time this word is used in all of the scriptures is right here in Philippians chapter 10 or chapter 3 verse 11 where Paul uses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the word the Greek word ex anastasio. You see the difference? There's a prefix in front of that word anastasio. It's ex anastasio. Now in the Greek, the prefix ex means out of. So what we have here is that I might attain to the out of the resurrection, resurrection. Got it? Does that make it clear for you? Not really, huh? Okay, well let's see what we can do to explain that. This is the only time, as I said, the word is used in all of Scripture. The out-resurrection from among the corpses is the literal translation of that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The out-resurrection from among the corpses. Paul, what are you talking about? You're sounding like you're 
talking babble or, or gibberish here. We don't get you. We don't understand. This phrase, I want you to know this, adds even more hope to you and I as the children of God. You see, Paul knew that if he died and was buried in a tomb or in a grave like Jesus was, that his body would be resurrected and be brought back to life. He wrote all about it in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, it's what gives us hope. We have hope in knowing that, and in 1 Thessalonians as well, he said, those who have died in Christ will be raised first, will be resurrected first, will be brought up out of the ground, out of their death. They'll be caught up in the air first. The resurrection of the dead will happen. Paul had no doubt about it. He was absolutely convinced that it would happen. But in verse 11, he's talking about something different. He's talking about what he wrote about in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, where he said, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, in verse 11, Paul is talking about the rapture or the catching up of the church to meet the Lord in the air. Did you ever tie the resurrection Sunday, the power of the resurrection to the rapture of of the church in this way? That's what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 3. He actually is talking about the fulfillment of John 14 verse 3 where Jesus said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus is going to come to the clouds. He's going to descend from heaven. We're going to hear the shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet will blare. And the dead in Christ will raise first, and those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up, and so shall we ever be with the Lord uh, for all of eternity. MacArthur explains it really well in his commentary. Listen to what he says. He says, believers will attain to that resurrection in verse 11 at the rapture, when we will not all sleep, But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound like there was any doubt. God said it, so guess what? The trumpet is going to sound. And the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be what? We will be changed. This mortal will put on immortality. This dead person will be granted life. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Who goes on to say, MacArthur believes that we will be taken out from among the rest of the dead corpses. In other words, from among the rest of the unbelievers. We will be caught up out of the dead ones who are left behind. They're still alive as far as the world is concerned, but they are dead in their trespasses and sins. We will be caught up and transformed, raised to be with Christ. He says, brought up from the rest of the dead corpses who will not be raised until the end of the millennial kingdom and we will be transformed into the image of Christ. I'm waiting for it. Woo! Transformed into the image of Christ. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can prevent it. My friends, that is resurrection power. 
in its finest, in all of its glory. You might call this, if you will, a double blessing of sorts. Not only are we guaranteed resurrection from the dead in verse 10, but there's also the hope of the rapture in verse 11. So you see, Paul was actually very much like us. I think that there's many of us that are sitting in this room this morning that are hoping, or we might even say wishing, that the rapture would happen in our lifetime. If you're in that group of people, those of you that are longing and hoping for that rapture to happen, shout out Maranatha, if you will. You know what that word means? That was a word that was used again by the early church. It was a word that, was, that, that meant, it actually was a phrase, a combination of words, uh, and it meant, oh Lord, come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That was all kind of wrapped up in that word Maranatha. Paul, G, Paul, John said it at the end of Revelation in, in chapter 21 where he writes these words, even so, Lord Jesus, come and come quickly. Come quickly. We're waiting for you. We can't wait for you to come. You see, what Paul's telling the Philippians and us here in Philippians chapter 3 is that resurrection power provides ultimate hope. The hope of the same kind of resurrection that Jesus was the first fruits of. Resurrection from the dead if we die in this life. But if we're alive at the rapture, it's that resurrection power that's going to cause us to be caught up with the Lord in the air and to be transported into heaven where Paul says we will be with him forever. And then John says in John, 1 John chapter 3, we'll become like him because we shall see him as he is. What a grand and glorious thought that the resurrection power is not just about the resurrection from the dead or the empty tomb, but it is about the power that carries us off into heaven should we be here on the day of the rapture. This morning we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, not just the empty cross, not just the empty tomb. We celebrate the words of the angel in the tomb when the angel said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, for he is risen. We also celebrate the power of the resurrection that is at work in us. You see, Paul assured us of the truth in Romans chapter 8 when he wrote this. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. As a child of God, the spirit, the power of resurrection is at work in your life. And praise God that it is. You know why? Because it is the power of the resurrection that brings new life to the individual who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We've heard testimonies of that transforming work in the lives of Barry and Yvonne. We heard the deacons and I heard it in the life of Christine this morning. God is still at work in the lives of people, taking sinners and washing them clean by the blood of Jesus Christ and bringing them into the family of God. You and I witness this. We see it at work. The power of the resurrection is still very much in display in 2023. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is what gives life to our mortal bodies through his spirit. How does that work in us today, other than salvation? Well, it gives us the ability to suffer as we live for Jesus. You know, we have brothers and sisters around the world that know what that means. 
brothers and sisters who suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. Some of them are put to death. On a daily basis, people die for the name of Jesus. We've not experienced that really in our country yet, by God's grace. And we don't know how long that grace will continue to make that true. It could come to an end. And I want you to understand this, that the resurrection power will sustain you through those sufferings, whatever they may be, however intense they may be. As we feed that desire to live for Jesus and to face possible difficulty or, excuse me, maybe even persecution for his sake, we can be confident of the resurrection power to be working in our lives that same resurrection power also guarantees that we will be resurrected if we die in this life or that we will be caught up in the air and we will meet Jesus and we will go home to be with him for all of eternity. This morning, the challenge for you and I is that we would use this resurrection power to live for the Lord and to serve him faithfully during this life that he has allowed us to live where he has placed us today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we want to tell you thank you for the resurrection power. Thank you for the fact that our lives are in your hands. And whether we live, we live for you. If we die, we die for you. And Father, if we die in this life, we are confident we know that you will resurrect us to new life and glory with you. But Father, if we are here and alive on the day of the rapture, oh, what a blessing that is going to be. We're going to be transferred from life to new life in heaven and become like our Savior when we see him face to face. What a glorious day that will be. And Father, we can't thank you enough, but we ask that you would help us to thank you by living a life that honors you and points others to the same Savior that you have blessed us with, your Son, Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.